following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our diseases, our sicknesses, our pain. He carried our pain. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds you have been healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his shears is silent, he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Do you want to be a servant? Let me ask the question again. Do you want to be a servant? The question seems absurd because, frankly, all of us have lived up against the wall. What's the wall? The certainty that we are going to die, and we don't know how to face that. Old age where we look back and see how little we've been able to accomplish for ourselves or for anyone else, as we try to make sense of why we've lived. Or perhaps the wall for you has been sickness, 
and it's impossible. And as one man said in his great fever, I'm dying with this cancer. He has lived against that wall as the tough man. But finally, cancer subdues him. And the wall won't let him through. Or perhaps the wall you have faced is financial trauma. Maybe you've lost your house. Maybe you have no money to pay rent this month. You live against the wall of injustice where people have been unfair to you, where they have treated you poorly, where those you thought would help have turned their backs on you and walked away. Some of you have lived against that wall of loneliness, isolation, hopelessness. We all live with that wall. Now, we can pretend it's not there, and we can pretend that we're successful, but all of us in the depths of our heart know that wall is there. We've tried climbing it. We've tried going around it. We've tried digging under it. And the wall is still there. The wall of a broken marriage. The wall of a child born out of wedlock, the wall of an abortion, things that bring us up short. And we say, how am I going to survive? How can I live with this? It's impossible. And some of the great minds, like Nietzsche or Camus, they have responded to the wall by finally saying, It is utterly impossible. And they have simply ended their lives in suicide because they couldn't get past the wall. So for me to come in that reality and ask you, do you want to be a servant? Most of you are going to answer, only if it gets me where I want to go only if it accomplishes for me what I desire. If I'm a servant, can I get past the wall? No man naturally wants to be a servant. We all want to be served. And I have struggled all of my life with this issue, sometimes consciously and sometimes in a fog of unconsciousness. I've wanted to be loved and respected and thought of as someone with value. And often I have not been any of those things. And I have been what some of my friends have called me a quester, someone who is always searching looking, thinking, trying to understand what's going on around me and in me and trying to understand how I have chosen to respond with such self-centeredness, such judgment, such lashing out with 
angry words because someone was not behaving in the way I thought they should or I just thought they were stupid. And my attitude has not been very pleasant. So the question, do you want to be a servant, is perhaps for you a very uncomfortable question. Now, I know without any question and without any doubt, I do want to serve Jesus Christ. Then the question comes, do I want to serve? Do I want to serve others? Because Jesus' whole life was about, first of all, serving, and then secondly, being an atoning sacrifice. That's what I just read for you in Isaiah 53. How do we get through the wall? How do we cope with it? I've tried coping with the wall by being angry at it, fighting against it, being utterly determined, I will get through that wall just by working hard if necessary. But all of us finally have to come to a point where we recognize the wall will not come down by hard work or by creative imagination. wall doesn't come down that way. There has to be a door. There has to be an opening through which we can transit. So I raise the question today. Frankly, I'm going to be raising the same question with the National Prayer Chapel. I have found that the common practice in the Christian church today is that we come together for a meeting, a worship service, and people come and they sing songs of praise. They listen to the activities that are going to be going on and they pick and choose what they would like as consumers. And then listen to an inspirational message, hopefully. And in most churches, hear some jokes about football or baseball or basketball. Laugh a little, and then hopefully the pastor will give a little bit of inspiration to give us a little bit of hope as we struggle at the wall for the coming week. And then everybody goes home. And it's social. Some people network with their businesses and some people network to go out to lunch together. And that's about it. Now, maybe 20% of the church is involved in some way of putting on what's happening. Most of it is consumerism. And they pay for it by dropping in the offering plate their tithes or their offerings. So they've, in their mind, 
done their part. And it's my church. I'm not satisfied with that model. I have been against this wall of building a caring, serving church most of my life, and most of my life I've failed at this mission. Oh, in the process, many people have been helped. I don't deny the great value of the institution, but it's not really made a difference in our culture. It's not really the New Testament church. So I'm going to be challenging the National Prayer Chapel. Do you want this to be a servant church? And what would that look like? And how do we go about creating that? Because nothing happens without someone making a decision to do something. But there has to be a vision to be able to do something. And if that vision is self-centered and self-reinforcing that I'm valuable and worthwhile and I'll go find a helpie, like I'll go find some homeless people and hand out some sandwiches, and now I feel like I've done something good. But I've walked away from the homeless and I haven't known them. I haven't spoken with them in depth about who they are and how they got to that place. I haven't invited them to come and live in my home. I've just been a a helper. That's not a servant church. So how do we begin to even talk about being servants of Jesus? How do we even begin to understand what it means to be a servant. The disciples struggled with this same issue. They lived in the gray fog of their fishing businesses, or Matthew sitting at his tax collector booth and having his parties with his friends and joking and laughing and telling his stories until Jesus walked up to his booth and said, Matthew, come follow me. And now suddenly he is in a very severe crisis. His whole life is now turned upside down. Today we pretty well manage in the church without turning anybody's life upside down except, well, we just don't turn people's lives upside down. So we come now to the disciples How do we begin to get a hold of what happened? Well, in Mark, the ninth chapter, I've already spoken with you about their failure and their inability to cast a demon out when they have been granted the authority to even raise the dead. But they can't cast an unclean spirit out. Jesus is very upset with them. In fact, you could say Jesus was angry. Why? Because they've proven that there's another issue on the table that he doesn't want on the table. And he says to them, 
this kind. They, they talk to Jesus. They ask him, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus answered, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Well, demons don't respond to prayer and fasting in that manner. So what was Jesus talking about? He was saying, look, there's something going on in your lives that blocks my power from moving through you. And if you want my power to move through you, you're going to have to begin to pray and fast so that you can catch on to what's going on in your own heart so that you can know what's required of you for my spirit to move through you. Left that place, and they were walking through Galilee. He was trying to get his disciples off by themselves so he could address some of these issues with them. And he began to speak to them about the fact that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of men, that he was going to be killed, and that after three days he would rise from the dead. Well, they couldn't understand what he was saying. It was hidden from them. And they were afraid to ask him what he was saying to them. And finally, as they're walking, they come to Capernaum. That's where Peter had his home. It was a small home. It wasn't large. I've, I've stood beside the excavated area of Peter's home in Capernaum. Go into the house. And they're very quiet. Jesus says to them, What were you arguing about on the road as we were walking? He noticed they all hung back. They didn't step forward and and speak with him and ask what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Instead, they hung back. They'd been arguing about who was the greatest among them. They were not interested at this point in being servants. They were interested in power. And they wanted to be the greatest. And this blocked the flow of the power of God as they faced the demonic entity that invaded this young boy's life. They had no power to cast it out. Because they selfishly wanted power over one another. They didn't want to serve. They wanted to be served. Jesus calls the twelve disciples to himself. And he says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last. And the servant of all. And he took a little child. He had the child stand among them. The child in that day was not the infatuation of the parents. The child had almost no value in that culture. And he says, look, you're going to have to be like this little child, unimportant, no utility about you. You're going to have to be like this little child. You're going to have to give up your lust for power and recognition and authority. And they talked to him about some 
person somewhere who was casting demons out in the name of Jesus. They were unable to cast the demons out, and they were jealous. And they said, we ordered him to stop. He's not allowed to do that. Jesus rebukes them again. This power issue is so huge in our lives. We think the only way through this wall is to power our way through. It's not. That's not how we power through a wall. We can't. We just smash our heads against it. We get bruised and broken. He continues. People are bringing little children to Jesus to bless them. And the disciples are indignant. No, don't bring your child. He's too busy. Well, as these mothers were being rebuked, because Jesus was so busy, Jesus heard this, and he became indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who receives the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them. And he blessed them. Now, Are you uncomfortable yet with this? I mean, it gets right down to the hard issue, doesn't it? What makes us valuable? What gives meaning to life? It's certainly not going to work and making money. What gives your life meaning? Jesus in verse 29 of chapter 10. This is Mark 10, 29. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Everything in our natural human heart desires to be first, to be the king on the mountain. And Jesus is saying, look, my kingdom doesn't work that way. If you want to be first, be last. If you want to be first, don't make yourself king of the mountain. Make yourself a servant, a slave. Now, Jesus again tries to talk to them about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. As they're walking toward Jerusalem, Jesus is in the front leading the way. 
and the disciples are shaking their heads in absolute astonishment. And they were afraid. And again, he talks to the twelve about what's going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. They can't understand what he's talking about because they want the throne established to fight Rome and every enemy, and they want Jesus to establish his kingdom on the earth and to defeat the enemies, and they want to sit at the right and the left hand of power. They want to be a part of the government. Jesus is saying, look, it's not going to happen that way. This is not about you becoming somebody. This is about you giving up your authority and your power. They can't understand what Jesus is saying to them because in their hearts they are utterly blocked by the desire to be somebody. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. We all think that others should treat us with a certain dignity. It's like the the man who was called to a very poor church, a small church. And he went, but he had no car. And so finally, he said, I can't make pastoral visits without a car. I'm going to have to buy a car. And so for $100, he bought an old beat-up jalopy, an ugly car that has that was far beyond its natural use. And he drove that old car. And some of the parishioners began to grumble about this and say, we can't have our pastor driving an old car like that. That's wrong. It doesn't give our church and it doesn't give our pastor dignity. Our pastor needs to drive a a car that will bring dignity to him as our pastor. He's somebody. And we want people to think about this and, and look at his beautiful car and say, our pastor's somebody. And that wise and dear pastor had the right answer. He said, no, you don't understand. It's not the car that gives the pastor dignity. It's the dignity of the pastor that gives the car value. In other words, this pastor had dignity because he was buried and hidden in Jesus Christ. He was a servant. He didn't have to have a beautiful new car to bring dignity to the church. 
either the church had dignity in Jesus Christ or a big, beautiful new building wouldn't do anything for him. And I tell you, I see so many churches wanting to go deeply in debt and build these beautiful structures to tell people we're somebody. We're important. It's not the way Jesus works. This pastor was right on. It's not the car that gives dignity to the pastor. It's not the building that gives dignity to the church. It's the church that gives dignity to the building. It's who gives dignity to his car. Well, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to Jesus. And they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, in another place in Scripture, in Matthew, it's not James and John who come alone. It's the mom. It's the mother of James and John that shows up. And she says, I would like you to do for me what I ask. Well, what are you asking, Jesus said. In Mark, it's, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Notice they did not say, let one of us be crucified on the left side and one of us crucified on the right side. No, they were not interested in crucifixion. They were interested in glory. They were interested in recognition. They were interested in power. They wanted to be somebody. They wanted to be loved and accepted and counted as important. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they they answered, we can. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. They didn't know what they were asking for. And yes, one of them would later, very quickly after Jesus rose from the tomb, be be killed by Herod. He would be martyred. He would drink the cup that Jesus was about to drink, the cross. John, on the other hand, was thrown into a pot of boiling oil, history tells us, and they couldn't kill him. But he ended up on the Isle of Patmos, the most dangerous man in all of Rome. They had to isolate him on this barren, forsaken rock, a prison rock on the island. Jesus did not give James and John the right to sit at his right and left. He gave them instead the privilege of dying a martyr's death and of being a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. 
of being scourged and beaten. He gave them the privilege of being servants. He said, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now, inevitably, the other ten disciples hear about what they have asked of Jesus, and they become very angry. Jesus called the disciples to come and sit with him. And he said to them, this is Mark 11, verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Now, it's very dangerous to be a servant because you don't get to sit at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. You don't get to exercise authority. You're called to be a servant. Now, what does a servant have to do to be a servant? First, the servant has to love. It's a decision. Will I love this person I consider to be most unlovely? Will I love my husband when I think he's a jerk? When I think he's stupid? Will I love my wife when she's angry and hostile and bitter? Will I love my children? One mother who used to call me often after the broadcast, I haven't heard from her for some time. She was having a very hard time because her college, her college age son, she was divorced She'd poured her heart out for this son. She'd sacrificed time and money and energy. Everything she had, she sacrificed for this son. He was the very center of her heart and her life. And then he goes to college and starts to get buddy-buddy with his estranged father who is divorced from mom. And he wants to go spend weekends with dad. He wants to be buddy-buddies with dad. And she is deeply hurt by this. She sees this as utter betrayal. She sees this as stomping on her heart. And the more she sees this, the more she demands from him that he reject dad and come to her and listen to her and obey her. And of course, you can guess what happened. The more she tried to tighten the apron strings on her college-age son, the more he cut them and refused to even recognize her. Still wanted money from her, wanted the benefits, but didn't want the emotional relationship because it was not about her serving him. 
It was about her owning him and her owe and his owing her. Well, there's some very painful things we get into over this issue. A servant, first of all, must love without clinging. A servant must look with open eyes and open understanding, without controlling, without saying, you belong to me and not to him. I'm the one who sacrificed for you. That wins a young guy's heart, doesn't it, when mom says that? No, it splits them. It destroys the relationship because the love has these tight knots connected to it. Jesus came and just loved. There's a second thing a servant must do. A servant must listen and not go off like some master. A servant must first love with humility and then must listen carefully. And then third, the servant must take action because a servant acts in the manner necessary to meet the need of the master. Those are the three elements of a servant heart. A decision that I will love, even when it's tested to the depth by a very unlovely action on the part of another. A servant is never rude. A servant lives in 1 Corinthians 13. A servant has a gape love. Servant, sacrificial love. A servant then carefully listens to the other with humility. Not with judgments, humility. And then a servant acts according to the directions they have. When a servant is a servant of Jesus, they act according to the principles laid out in Scripture for how a Christian should live. A servant acts. A servant doesn't sit around in beautiful robes and demand to be served. A servant gets up and makes the difference. Never forget, my father was the the lay pastor of a church, Sharpsville, Pennsylvania, Laramie, Wyoming, different places. He was the head elder. And I'd say, Daddy, why are we going to church so early? No one will be there yet. And he would say to me, because we need to be there to help. We need to be there to prepare and help Jesus. What do you mean, Daddy? Well, 
I want you to go through all of the pews in the church, and I want you to make sure there's at least one songbook in each songbook holder. I want you to go through and pick up any pieces of paper that were left from the last prayer meeting. Oh. So we would get to church, and the first thing Daddy would do is get up and wind the big clock up. And then he would begin to do what he had told me to do. He would work with me in making certain that the floor was clean. There was a cleaning lady, but sometimes she didn't get the job done. And so we would go through the whole building, arranging the chairs. I can't tell you how many times. In fact, it happened this last Sunday. People walked out of my home and left it a mess, but for one man. And this one man began moving all of the chairs back into place where they had been before the meeting. This man wanted the house to look just the way it had looked when they walked in. Now, why didn't everyone have that heart? Because everyone doesn't understand servanthood. And this is part of why I'm raising the question with the National Prayer Chapel. Do you want to be a servant? Do you want this church to be a servant church? Then we must serve one another. In reality, in putting the chairs away, asking me, where's the vacuum cleaner? I need to vacuum the floor for you. What do I need to do, Pastor? Servant. And I learned from my daddy that any time I go into a church building where there's going to be a meeting, I need to look around, even if I'm just visiting, and see what I can do to help make certain that everyone is comfortable in that place. Songbooks are there. I was at the National Cathedral for an eventide service, and the hymn came, and we were standing, and I saw a lady two rows up searching for a hymn book, and she couldn't find one. And suddenly the man behind her reached around and gave her a hymn book. And on her face was a brilliant smile of gratitude. He had just taken the part of Jesus and served another brother or sister. Chapter 11 of Mark, I'm sorry, chapter 10 of Mark, verse 43 Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, the slave of all. Do loss. No right to property. No right to family. No right for anything. Give up all your rights if you want to be a servant of Jesus Christ. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are the two reasons Jesus Christ came to the earth. First, 
to serve us. Secondly, to give his life as a ransom for many so that the works of the devil could be utterly destroyed. The devil does not ever come to serve. He comes to be served. He comes lying and stealing, killing and murdering. He comes to get you to be a bond servant of his. He doesn't serve you. Jesus came to serve. Now I ask you the question again. Do you want to be a servant? Are you willing to make the decision today that you will follow Jesus? And are you willing to put that into practice by determining that you will have love in your heart and not anger, bitterness, or judgments? That you will not give yourself over to condemnation against another man or woman, a boy or girl? Will you not take a superior position to them? But will you humble your heart and be a servant and love? And then secondly, Will you listen to them? Will you stop trying to tell them all that you know and ask them questions and listen to them? And then third, are you willing to take the specific actions necessary to meet the need of that person? This is what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus did not lead the disciples to the Colosseum where they could watch entertainment. He didn't take them to places to play games. He took them to places where they could love and where they could listen and where they could serve. Is this your heart? Now, let's wrap this broadcast up. Let me say this very clearly without any equivocation. When we live against the wall, there is only one way through that wall, and that way is Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the door. I am the gate. The only way through the human condition is to become a servant and follow Jesus, humbling our hearts, following Jesus. We don't have time to talk about it now, but later we will. Remember, at the very end, at the upper room supper, where Jesus takes off his robe and girds himself and washes the disciples' feet and then says, now do that for each other. Glory be to God. Do you want to be a servant? Well, we're out of time for this broadcast. I would love to hear from some of you. I was so encouraged yesterday. I heard from two of you. Would you write to me? Would you help pay for this broadcast? Will you partner with me and walk in Jesus as a servant? Write to me, the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Or if you'd like to be a part of a servant church, call me, 703. 
489-1785. I'm Ray Greenley. This has been Pilgrim's Progress from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With